Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of B-Sides, where we discuss what does not fit in a sermon. This episode is following our message on Numbers 10 through 14, How to Lead a Miserable Life. And in 60 seconds or less, that message went like this. We read from the children's story, the Alexander's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Yet no one had as bad of a day as Israel when God sentenced them to their 40-year death march for their rebellion in the wilderness, their refusal to go into the promised land which God told them to go into. So chapter 10 starts with them leaving Mount Sinai and going to this land. Along the way throughout the chapters, I highlighted five ways to lead a miserable life that Israel did. We then closed, and to hear those five, you'll have to go and hear the message. Uh, we then closed with the idea that grace is a trampoline. We fall, but we must learn to fall upward, like Caleb, like Joshua, who still entered the promised land. We have a tendency to get stuck in our own 40-year death march because we mope and pity our mistakes. But grace wants to help us bounce back. And that's a difficult message. That grace, that God does not hold our mistakes against us. And grace doesn't just put a magic eraser over it like it never happened. Because between you and I, we know it happened, don't we? But what grace wants to do is it wants to use our failures as a way to catapult us forward. We learn from mistakes more then we learn from successes. What I want to do is touch on the five ways to lead a miserable life. Uh, I want to touch on one of those, or perhaps, well, two that kind of go together. I'll recap the five for you. First, if you want to lead a miserable life, expect entitlement and reject enough. So expect, I deserve these things, which stems from the idea that life isn't enough. We are not enough. We don't have enough. Israel wanted not just the manna, they wanted meat. Two, act on your adolescent appetite. The idea that I've got to have it, I've got to have it now. And that this craving for it, well, we blow it up to eternal proportions. I'm always going to have this intense of a craving, always. <laughs> um, so Israel acts on the meat, which God clearly wasn't wanting them to have, but they act on it because they got to have it now, and they got sick because of it. Number three, lead a miserable life. Practice prejudice. Aaron and Miriam judge Moses's new wife because, apparently, because she's a Cushite, which means not of our tribe. It doesn't belong to us. As a result, Miriam becomes a leper. She does get healed, but the entire group of Israel must freeze for seven days while she recovers. Number four, think about what others think. Proverbs 29.25 tells us that the fear of man is a snare. It traps you. You won't be able to move. You'll be stuck in your own 40-year death march if we are always concerned with what people think about us. 
The goal is to start not caring what people think about us and just be the people God wants us to be. Even more liberating is the idea that nobody is thinking about you. Be you. Be the you God made you to be. We need you. We don't need people imitating people and trying to be like people and following trends and ideas and concepts that everybody else is doing. Following the crowd. That, my friends, is a 40-year death march. Walking around the same cacti over and over and over. And fifth, to lead a miserable life, believe in the malevolence of God. And that is what we saw Israel doing. They were convinced God was leading them to the promised land to kill them. Well, if you cannot trust God, you don't have a lot of trust for anything. And you are going to lead a miserable life because God is the ultimate goodness of the universe. God is the one who gives grace. God is the one who's giving us all things, all gifts, all breath, life itself. God is the one who's given us the universe. God is the good giver. And if we cannot trust in his goodness, where are you going to turn? Typically, people turn to themselves or they turn to substances or other created things. And, of course, you know, this has been the problem of the world since the fall. What we realize is that God is not someone we can't trust. He is good, and Caleb and Joshua realize that. No, God delights in us. He wants to bless us with this land. Let's go for it. But the giants. Oh, the giants. I want to touch on the idea of expect entitlement, reject enough, and then the second one, act on your adolescent appetites. Because I sense that a lot of people struggle with this, mostly because this is something that we can come across multiple times a day. This is when I think we see Israel kind of, this is, it's not the first time they've complained about the food and they're wanting to go back to Egypt. Uh, it's just one that struck me as something, you know, we have more to say on this. And one of the reasons, then, that we expect entitlement, or we expect things, or we crave things, we have a strong appetite for something, is because deep down inside, we fear we are not enough. We fear we are not enough. The reason so many people want so much stuff want to tell the world how great they are on social media, want to feel entitled to deserve this or this respect from that person or get access to this entertainment. The reason we have these things going on is because deep down inside, we fear dying of insignificance. We fear that we are not enough, that when life is over and done, the powers that be will be disappointed in us. And perhaps that's come from your own parents. Maybe they never let you know that you're enough. Or maybe a religious leader, a Christian leader, a pastor has made, maybe I have made you feel like, hopefully not, made you feel like you are not enough. Maybe it's a spouse or a child or a teacher. We are surrounded by expectations and by people who are feeding into us our idea of ourself. And we can therefore grow in this opinion that we somehow don't measure up. Maybe for you, your view of God says you 
are not enough. A plethora of ways that we feel that we don't measure up. Uh, We can believe that we are never good enough, never perfect enough, never thin enough, never powerful enough, never successful enough, never smart enough, never certain enough, never safe enough, never extraordinary enough, never righteous enough, never holy enough, never you fill in the blank. You have your own never this enough. And as a result, we try to accumulate things that make us feel enough. To compound this, we are our own enemies because we live with this idea that we never have enough of anything. I want to read this quote from Lynn Twist. She writes, For me, and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. Oh man, right off the bat, I am in this picture. I wake up with the whole not enough mentality. And so many of us, before our feet even hit the ground, we are already not getting enough of something. We continue. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Oh, guilty again. She continues, whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to that reverie of lack. This internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity, lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, and our arguments with life. Oh my goodness, friends. We live in a graceless mindset. Which is why I believe all of this comes back to, if you want to lead a miserable life, believe in the malevolence of God. We need the grace of God so much. We need to see his goodness. We need to see how much he loves us, that he's always pouring his goodness toward us. It's a matter of whether we want to be where he's pouring it out or not. Brothers and sisters, we are enough. No, no, not you on your own. I get that. We're sinful beings. But God has given us grace upon grace upon grace. And there's no limit to our request of grace. The king of the universe has an infinite supply of grace at his disposal. And he's given us his Holy Spirit who lives within us. 
Do you ever stop to think about how profound it is that the Spirit of God lives within you? And so when we feel this gaping void, this emptiness, this I'm not enough, we are clearly not walking in the Spirit of God. The infinite, all-good, grace-giving God lives within you. How can you not be enough? We are enough because He has given us enough. He lives within us. We don't have to live in scarcity. We can live in generosity and grace. And so, because we often aren't aware of this, we are often not walking in the Spirit, we crave and we consume. We crave, we consume. We're like black holes sucking everything toward us, the outer world into us, trying to consume it, trying to eat it, trying to become part of it, trying to just somehow get it in us so that we feel like we're enough. The problem is we even begin to absorb light itself so that it is vanquished from our lives. To continually be in this sucking motion of bringing everything toward us to fill this void, to try to make ourselves enough, you will eventually ruin everything around you. We are not black holes trying to suck the entire universe toward ourselves just to feel like we're something. We're the opposite. We're pushing life outward Because the more than enough God lives within us, and he is not pulling everything into us, he has brought everything into us and wants us to push it outward to the world. We are not just more than enough. The grace that we need from God as we receive it, it is filling us from head to toe, every part of our being, and it wants to push out of us toward others. And I do have to believe that when we fail and when we make mistakes, it is not the time to beat ourselves up, but it's the time to say, thank you, God, for your grace. And now there's a little crack for that grace to bleed outward to bless the world. So we feel like we're not enough. So we crave and we consume. Simone Weil, I think I'm saying that right, she was a French philosopher. Uh, She wrote a really interesting concept about two birds, where she imagines two birds sitting on the branch of a tree. One bird looks at the fruit on the tree. The other bird eats the fruit of that tree. And if you don't mind, I'm going to quote her in this quote from another book. Uh, from Barbara Taylor Brown in An Altar in the World. Uh, It goes like this. The great trouble in human life is that looking and eating are two different operations. Simon Whale writes in Waiting for God. Now our author continues. Human beings have a hard time regarding anything beautiful without wanting to devour it. A child may love looking at a shiny red apple so much that she hates the idea of biting into it, but her appetite will win out. 
What good is looking at a lovely thing when you can take it inside of you? The same instinct drives compulsive shoppers, promiscuous lovers, and petty thieves. Quote, It may be that vice, depravity, and crime are nearly always, or even perhaps always, in their essence, attempts to eat beauty, to eat what we should only look at, end quote, whale guesses. Before quoting one of her favorite passages, where there are two winged companions, two birds on the branch of a tree, which I just described to you, one eats the fruit, the other looks at it, and then whale uh, is quoted concluding this, these two birds are the two parts of our soul. Isn't that great? There's this part of us that craves and wants beauty because God designed us to appreciate beauty, the beauty he made. But when we don't believe we're enough, when we believe we're a constant failure and that we're disappointing everybody, we will start to crave beauty as something to consume. Like that black hole trying to suck everything into itself. Proverbs 25, 16. If you have found honey... Eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Friends, we do have needs. So go for the honey, go for the beauty, but don't endlessly consume like you're not enough. You don't even need the honey. That's the best way to eat it. Just enjoy it. The honey doesn't taste nearly as good once it is eaten. Have you ever noticed that? We desire and crave something, but it's actually the craving it that is stronger than the enjoyment of it. Once we have it, that craving, that desire vanishes. And to learn to live, knowing that we're totally enough because of what God is in us, um, we can start to see the things we crave as being just that. They're best left untouched because once I touch it, I realize that my desire and craving has only moved on one step ahead of me. You see, absence is the strength of desire. But once that desired object is no longer absent, the desire, well, it shows itself to be a disappointment. See, desire is always one step ahead. So we pursue that thing which we desire. Once we grab it, well, desire just left that object or thing or person or idea or whatever and went on to the next thing. And so you're always going to be chasing desire one step ahead of you. And every time you get there, it vanishes. It's like a phantom, like a ghost, something you just can't. Like wind, you just can't grab it in your hand. It's always there, but you just can never own it. And so it leads you in this cycle, your own 40-year death march, if you will. And so with this concept of desire always being one step ahead, I'd like to read one more selection for you from Rebecca Solnit in her book, A Field Guide for Getting Lost. I love this author. Very poetic, very beautiful writing. And so I want to share with you this passage, and I will summarize it real briefly here, um, about this idea of the distance of blue, also being the idea of desire being one step ahead of us. Now, the distance of blue, the concept being that the color blue in both the sky and water is only seen from distance. 
And of course, we know somewhat, most of us know kind of vaguely, like me, just kind of barely know that the sky is blue and water is blue because blue light is scattered by the molecules. And so it's really best seen at a distance. Now, if you take water in a cup, it's going to be clear. But if you go back from a lake or from the ocean, it takes on a bluer hue. The air right in front of you is not blue. But if you look out toward the horizon, it's blue. So enjoy this selection, please. Rebecca Solnit. The world is blue at its edges and in its depths. This blue is the light that gets lost. Light at the blue end of the spectrum does not travel the whole distance from the sun to us. It disperses among the molecules of the air. It scatters in water. Water is colorless. Shallow water appears to be the color of whatever lies underneath it. But deep water is full of this scattered light. The purer the water, the deeper the blue. The sky is blue for the same reason. But the blue at the horizon... The blue of land that seems to be dissolving into the sky is a deeper, dreamier, melancholy blue. The blue at the farthest reaches of the places where you see for miles. The blue of distance. The light does not touch us. Does not travel the whole distance. The light that gets lost gives us the beauty of the world, so much of which is in the color blue. We treat desire as a problem to be solved. Address what desire is for and focus on that something and how to acquire it rather than on the nature and the sensation of desire. Though often it is the distance between us and the object of, de of desire that fills the space in between with the blue of longing. I wonder sometimes if you can look across the distance without wanting to close it up. If you can own your longing in the same way that you own the beauty of what of that blue that can never be possessed. For something of this longing will, like the blue of distance, only be relocated, not assuaged, by acquisition and arrival. Just as the mountains cease to be blue when you arrive among them, and the blue instead tints the next beyond. I love that last part, just the co the question of, can you really acquire that longing? Just like that color blue, as soon as you get to where it is, it's not there. It's still ahead of you. Again, I wonder sometimes if you can look across the distance without wanting to close it up. If you can own your longing in the same way that you own the beauty, that blue, that can never be possessed. For something of this longing will, like the blue of distance, only be relocated, not assuaged by acquisition and arrival. Just as the mountains cease to be blue when you arrive among them, and the blue instead tints the next beyond can we, brothers and sisters, be content just seeing what we long for, seeing what we desire, and just leaving it there? Do we always have to put our hand on things, stomp our foot on things, own it, possess it, manipulate it, consume it, absorb it? Do we always have to do these things? Of course, there are some things that are not wrong to consume and desire. A delicious red apple, beautiful, 
wonderful and it's not wrong to eat it. But what is it about us? The question is asking, and this obviously starts to apply to bigger things like sin or things that will ruin and make your life miserable. What is it about us that sees something and wants it and will do anything to go get it and to grab it and to really annihilate it in our own possession? See, brothers and sisters, the blue, the distance of blue Do you expect entitlement? Do you expect to get these things? And yet we can complain about the culture being an entitlement society. But look, what's really going on is that we feel inadequate. And so we're trying to make ourselves adequate. Are we rejecting the word enough? Do we know how to say, I have enough. God sees me as enough. God has given me enough. The friends I have are enough. The clothes I have are enough. What I have accomplished in life is enough. But sometimes things aren't enough, and that's okay. We have needs, we have wants. Go for what you need. Learn to say enough to what you want. Um, and so maybe that will help us not to act on our adolescent appetite, not to simply react because there are giants in our lives, but to realize that God sees you and I as more than enough. And if there is anything else we can grasp, we must grasp that. That the potential of a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad life is answered by bouncing on the trampoline of grace. So friends, God is giving you grace. You're enough. Will you live by that? And now for our preview into Numbers 15 through 21. So that's right. On Sunday, we'll be teaching through 15, from 15 to 21. What are some of the things you can be thinking about, praying about, looking for as you read it? Well, chapter 15 is about sacrifices in a variety of ways. Uh, I covered a lot of that in Leviticus. Uh, to just let you know, I don't really plan to teach much of that. Chapter 16 gets really interesting, and not because chapter 15 doesn't matter, but because, honestly, there's some really, really good stuff coming up. Like chapter 16, Korah leads a rebellion, him and three other minions, and then he's got a little ragtag group of 250 people who basically want to say, and they're Levites, by the way, they want to say, Aaron, you've gone too far. You're not the only one in charge here. We want to be in charge. There's a test, and it doesn't end well for Korah. Uh, then there's another test where they take the staffs of different leaders of different tribes and Aaron's rod, his staff blossoms, which was God's way of saying, this is the one I've chosen. So don't challenge my priests. <laughs> it's not like an up for grabs position. I've chosen Aaron to be the priest and his sons will be the priests. And so that was confirmed by the blossoming uh, uh, staff of Aaron. And then uh, in chapter 18, we have some duties. Chapter 19, we have some laws for purification. Chapter 20, we have the death of Miriam. And then Moses strikes the rock, which he does out of anger as the people are thirsty. He strikes a rock. God tells him not to strike it. He strikes it. He's mad. He's upset. He's grumpy. And for that, he loses the promised land. Ouch. And then in chapter 21, we have um, a battle. We have the bronze serpent. People are getting bit by snakes and Moses makes a bronze serpent and people look at it and they're healed. Jesus refers to that when he says uh, to Nicodemus in John 3, the son of man must also be lifted up just like that serpent in the wilderness. 
And so Jesus is our healer. We look to him. Uh, so that's what's coming up. What's sticking out to me, and I don't know entirely how much I'm going to go into this, but it's sticking out to me, is chapter 16, we have Korah rebelling against leadership. Chapter 17, we have God affirming Aaron's leadership. And then in chapter 20, we have Moses doing something dumb and losing. Uh, he does something bad as a leader and loses the promised land. So we have these lessons on leadership, it seems. So I think uh, as I'm reading and meditating and praying through these passages, I'm going to be seeing what God wants us to learn about leadership. Um, something in the along those lines. Now, in addition to this, and again, I don't know how much I'm going to use this, but I keep thinking about an excellent book by Gene Edwards, G-E-N-E Edwards, called A Tale of Three Kings. I believe I mentioned this on our last episode. Uh, I'm going to try to at least read portions of it this week in preparation. This book, everybody who's read it says what a good book it is. It is just one of those books that so many people that I've talked to have put it on the top five of their lifetime books. It's a book you will never read just once. You read it once, you're going to read it again. It's that kind of book. And the good news for you who don't read, it's a short book. You can read this book uh, in in five-minute sittings. The chapters are very short, so you can treat it like a devotional. Just read a little bit before you go to bed or when you wake up. Or you can read it all in one sitting if you're more used to reading longer stretches. It's, it's, a, it's a really simple book with a very profound message. And in this book, you have King David underneath King Saul. So I guess David isn't really the king yet, but he's been chosen. And it goes through how he has to wrestle with this concept of Saul is not a good leader, but I have been called to be the king. And how he has to um, relate to Saul, and there are times when David can kill Saul, and there are times when um, he's just got to wrestle with, what do I do with this guy? Do I respect him? How do I handle him? And throughout it, we're learning that David is choosing not to treat Saul the way Saul would treat Saul. David realizes that there's a Saul within each one of us, and that Saul has to die. Now, Korah clearly acts like King Saul, a tyrant who wants to uh, dispose of any kind of opposition. The last part of the book then goes into David as the king, and then his son Absalom wants to be king, and how David has to handle that situation now. Is he going to become the King Saul that he suffered under, or is he going to be a different sort of king? How does he handle that rebellion? That's what we see Moses and Aaron having to deal with. Rebellion, people wanting to replace them. So um, we'll see what comes out of this, see what you come up with. As always, feel free to email me, uh, contact me. It'd be great to have a dialogue going on this stuff. Brandon McCulloch at CalvaryChapel.com. I'll also put it in the notes of this podcast so you can see it. All right. Grace and gratitude to everyone. Have a great week.